Set it down. All right, all right, all right. I don't know if you heard me before the uh, invitation to do the meet and greet, but I said that we're, I think, the only Southern Baptist church that has a female MMA fighter who wins on Saturday night, still shows up to church on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> you should feel very secure in our security team. That's what the point of that, the takeaway there is. Um, another announcement, uh, quick before we get started, is um, I'm a little sleep hungover because we had a baby Saturday. Um, and so my wife's still in the hospital. We had C-section. Um, Abraham Jackson Corso, um, 8 pounds, 11 ounces, 19 inches long, uh, was born in the middle of an, uh, or early morning, like 4 or 5 in the morning, uh, Saturday. So he's there and we're excited and uh, mom's doing good, baby's healthy. We're just thankful to the Lord. Um, he's been so gracious to us. Number five, so now uh, as I was telling David, you know, we, we got, or he told me we have a basketball team now. Um, so next up is rugby sevens, after that's baseball, and then I don't know, football team. Yeah, it's good. Um, <clears throat> I want to, uh, we are starting a new series here at the church, uh, The Seven Churches of Revelation. And we're going to, in our house churches and in our times on Sunday, uh, we're going to walk through um, the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. And um, sort of as um, a runway getting us there, uh, I was thinking on us having babies, and it's so different having your first child um, versus your fifth. Um, and, but I remember that the hardest, most difficult, most, most nerve-wracking, challenging child for me to have was our first. And the thing that I realized about that was is that um, I did not know how selfish I was really until I got married. Once I got married, I realized I like the toilet paper to go a certain way. And I like to eat at certain hours, there's certain things that I like, there's certain things that I dislike, and those things surprisingly are not canonized in scripture for me to back up my points to prove that I'm correct, and that my wife is incorrect. And so when you first get married, you begin to um, chisel at one another's selfishness and rub up against one another, and that becomes a bit of friction, and so you have to work through your early selfishness in marriage. Um, otherwise, you're going to have conflict or one person dominating the other or vice versa. So um, I thought that that was like the highest um, way in which God could reveal to me how much I am a sinner and how much I need the gospel. And then I had my first kid. And it took that to like all other levels of showing me how much I need God's grace. Because I, I felt like when I first had my first kid, I drove home from the hospital and I drove home differently. Right? I was like, God forbid one of you Texas people hit this car, I will murder your whole state. Right? Like, you drive differently. You're not like a 16-year-old kid seeing how fast the car can go. You're like, are these safety seats really safe? Right? And, and you come home and you realize, oh my God, like I'm a kid and I'm having a kid what am I doing, you know, sort of thing. And you're like, if I don't feed this, if Whitney doesn't feed this kid, it will die. 
You know, this kid depends on me. And I don't know if I've ever had someone so dependent on me like that before. And so it kind of made me aware of how much I love my schedule. I love my money. I love to do things um, with my own stuff. And so it kind of it brought some things out of me. And it's really hard um, for us that have had kids to say this. It's really hard to prepare for that. Right? Like you, you can describe it to people. And listen, when you have your first kid, everybody tells you exactly what you need to do. They'll try to help you, right? They'll give you more information and wisdom than you want, right? When you have your fifth kid, they just say, please stop, right? Like, they don't, there's, no, there's no wisdom. They're just like, you know, just, just stop, all right? Um, but but we, you, you prepare for the kid to come, and so you do the things that seem most practical, you know? Um, unless you're one of those crazy people that don't find out the gender till the time of, all right? But we do, so we know that it's a boy, so we buy blue things, right? And we begin to prepare and to figure out, like, okay, what is this adjustment um, going to mean to us? Because this is happening. And what's crazy about getting pregnant for the first time, if you can think back when you, you know, or, or think about family members or things, is that you get pregnant and then you still got nine months. You hear what I'm saying? You get pregnant, you announce it on Facebook, right? Some of you are like, I don't even have internet. Or running water. We're talking about Facebook, right? But you announce it and you let people know and then there's this gap, right? Between what you have conceived and when the kid actually hits the ground. There's this gap between it's already here. It's a fully human being inside the womb culture. We need to tell that to our... It's already fully human. It's there and yet not yet. And there's something about that in our salvation where we are saved. And it is fully here and yet there's a not yet anticipatory aspect of God consummating fully what has already fully happened in us. It's an already not yet. And so as the distance between conception and deliverance is a moment of preparation to see what this kid's going to look like. Right? Right? Whose nose they're going to have and who can debate about which side of the family they actually look like. Right? There's a moment of preparation in that nine months. Here's what God's saying in His Word. I have consummated in you, I have the gospel. You are fully saved by the gospel if you have put your faith in Christ. And yet there's a day coming where the things that I've made right inside of you, I'm going to make all things right around you. Get your mind right ready for that. Pack your bag for the hospital. Make sure there's gas in the car. Right? Buy a crib. Get prepared to meet the Lord. And the thing about it is, from the, we knew, uh, you know, previous to Saturday night, we knew we were pregnant and going to have a kid. You know what I mean? 
But it's funny because when she's like, you know, I think I should probably go to the hospital. I was like, for real? As though we were surprised. Right? I mean, she could not get any bigger. She's not here and she doesn't listen to the podcast. It's fine. She could not get any bigger. But we're looking at it as though we're surprised that the baby had come. Right? This is happening. Right? Once you get pregnant, this is happening. Right? And it's, it's coming, ready or not. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. It's trying to tell us that this is happening. And it's going to be triggered and activated quickly. Now, for some of us, we may begin to be dazed by the fact that it's, we may convince ourselves, ah, I feel like we're somewhat into this, but it's not happening, or it's not happening soon enough. But He is coming. He is coming. As Gandalf would say, things are set in motion that cannot be undone. That's right. It's my one Lord of the Rings reference for the Sunday. Jesus is coming. Revelation is a book of preparation to see Him and to prepare our hearts that we might enjoy Him forever and not stand in opposition to Him as enemies, dreading His coming. So, um, maybe before we start, um, we just pray. And so, if you want to assume a posture of prayer and maybe just prepare your heart to interact with God's revealed word, maybe, maybe you'd ask yourself the question do you dread his coming? Or do you long for it more than you long for your next breath? Will his coming put a cramp on your style? Will it be an inconvenience to your life? Would it be something you wouldn't want to happen today because you want something else to happen more? Or is there an ache in your heart that says, even so come? Even so come. Maybe you would um, take a moment or two of reflection and ask, are you prepared to meet the Lord? If we looked at your bank accounts, we looked at where you spent your time this week, if we looked at where your attention, was it above or was it below, are you prepared to meet the Lord today? Or are you hoping that it happens at another time and another place? Because you find yourself completely unprepared. Just between you and the Lord, maybe right now, have a little reflection. Maybe lastly, um, we could, as a community, Meditate and go before the Lord and ask Him if this whole church thing, if our Christianity, our family, our worship, our prayers, 
this church and everything it's about, is it really about Jesus or is it about what it does for us? Are we here coming to the Word for us first and God is peripheral? Or are we coming to the Word today for God and let whatever consequence that has upon each of our lives be whatever it is? Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. God, we come into your throne for you. We want a revelation of you. We want a vision of you. We want to savor you. We're hungry for you. We're thirsty for you. We're unsatisfied unless we have you. Our affections long for you. We can't have enough of you and every other lesser idol is not as satisfactory as you are. And so come God and satisfy the pleasures inside of us that you have borne there by your Holy Spirit by giving yourself to us here. Come and weigh upon our hearts that sin might be convicted of and repented of so that we might be harnessed that much closer to your presence. God, in this service, exalt Jesus above and beyond what my words and mine are capable of doing. Come and pastor us today and shepherd us to the one who is the good physician, who is living water, who is the bread of life. Use John one more time just to teach us at the foot of Calvary. God, as we wade through these weighty texts, God, navigate us. People here above, jokes, stories, above all of the things that can be communicated, God, they need a vision of Jesus. They need Him. So Holy Spirit, come again. Show us Your Word and show us the Jesus it contains that's good medicine for sick people like us. God, we ask that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Book of Revelation, chapter 1. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, um, turn there. Revelation 1, the word of Revelation in Greek is the same word where we get apocalypse. And it means to reveal or expose in full view what was formerly hidden, veiled, or secret. The Bible, okay, is not about keeping secrets. And, And we have destroyed that. Anywhere it's been found in the early church, when Gnosticism, which claimed to have gnosko, special knowledge in the early times of the church, the early church says, no, we are not a cult who keeps secrets. 
We have a God who has disclosed himself in Jesus and the message of the gospel is preached from the roofs. It's not meant to be hidden in some speakeasy back alley. So whether it was Gnosticism in the early church or the conspiracy theories of Dan Brown and and some of the hidden cultic knowledge of Mormonism or things, Christianity is always, always, always a public faith. It's meant for the marketplaces, whether the cultures of the world like it or not. And so, Revelation is a book not about keeping secrets, but about publicly preaching them. This book, like the rest of the Bible, is given by God for communal reading and for divine disclosure. This is why we'll get into it in a minute. And he says, blessed are those who read the scriptures, who read this book, like, just like of all scripture, who hear this book and obey this book. Christians from the early church would take the books of the Bible, read them publicly just like we do standing, preach them, sing them, enjoy them. And there is a blessing when the Word of God is communally cherished and read to one another, studied together, and most importantly, obeyed by God's people. And so... God is about disclosure. From the beginning, the church has been blessed with prophecy, even though us in the New Testament are maybe less familiar with it than some of the saints in the left side of the book because they lived with prophecy as their scripture already and yet not yet fulfilled. But for us, we, we tend to see the things that are fulfilled in Jesus and we camp out there. Amen? But there are things that are still left in the Old and New Testament yet to be fulfilled. And so we need to familiarize ourselves with how God has given us prophecy as a gift. The already not yet of the gospel. I mean, just think about it for a minute. Um, The anticipation of the serpent's head being crushed was the stay and support of the patriarchal age in the Old Testament. The prophecies of the major and minor prophets of the coming Messiah were the gospel of the Old Testament. They were the grace of God and the promise of God that you put your faith through in anticipation, looking forward to Jesus. Christ himself prophesied of the destruction of the temple. And here he gives John a message for the end of days. This message or prophecy is to support his people's faith and direct their hope while calling sinners to repent in light of the coming judgment. It is a revelation therein because we, we cannot discover these things that God alone knows in the secret counsel of his hidden will. Human reasoning is never going to arrive at these things. Therefore, God must reveal, reveal them through his Holy Spirit for his good pleasure. Look here in verse 1, and then I'll say a couple things about it. Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Pause. If you don't start there, you're going to end up following some nut job with a calculator telling you when the end of days is. This This is a warning as I can get. This is not a revelation of every end-time fancy, and this is not about you. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This book 
is in part what the Bible is as a whole. A revelation of who Jesus is. Look at what it says next. Which God gave to him to show to his servants and things that must soon take place. Now this soon is meaning that they are en route and yet triggered quickly as they advance. Okay? First thing. This is a revelation of Jesus. Um, Let's pause there and just think about this in general for our Christianity and back up a minute. Many people come to church. They come to religious gatherings. And it's really um, not about Jesus and it's not about God. It's about them. And you can tell this because where the program happens, whether it's a Sunday school that happens at this building or it's a house church that happens off-site, They get so consumed about how it fits for them rather than do you enjoy meeting Jesus in His Word? Because this is a church about Jesus and if you love Jesus, you're going to fit in really well here and whatever we offer you to have encounters with Jesus and with His people, you're going to love that. But if it's really about that if there's not pizza Kool-Aid in a Ferris wheel to make you and your people happy, you're out, you're going to have problems here. Because we have no Ferris wheels in Bayfield. Right? We're out. Plum out. Okay? And I know that in our church culture where we try to be so seeker friendly and we want to invite people into the church, which by the way, I would much rather invite them to Jesus. It's kind of hard for them to even understand the church until they really get the gospel. But we have some atrophy in our evangelistic muscles as Christians because we've stopped inviting people to Jesus and we invite them instead to church. That's a whole other rant. But then whenever they get here, we make them twice addicted to themselves because we're trying to cater everything about you. Do you realize that this church fights ferociously to make everything about Jesus? Everything about Jesus. And the people that love Jesus, doesn't matter kind of how we serve that or what kind of platform that takes from this church. If you're into Jesus, you're into this church. Amen or oh me here. So when we come to things in the kingdom, we have to constantly check our heart saying, am I going to the church to serve Jesus or am I going to church for me? Now, that's not to say that there are not ways in which God pours out His power and grace through this church and just blesses people in here. I hope that when you come in this church, whether that's in your house church or whether that's gathered together here, that you experience the power and the love of God. Amen? That's happening. I can tell you story after story and people in this church that talk about how God is working in their lives through other Christians that are here. So I think there is a blessing and a benefit of being in church. That's just not the most important reason why you come here. And if you make something other than coming to Jesus the main thing, you lose that blessing that comes in the power and the grace through the community. Here's why I say that. This is a revelation of Jesus. There is very few places that are more indicting that we have made it a religion about us instead of worship about Him than when we come to study the Bible It feels dead and dry to us. And the first question we want to ask is, what does this have to do with me? We read Numbers chapter 5. 
And we say, oh, what does this have to do with my life, my workplace, my marriage, my kids? I'm not saying that you can't go down somewhere down the road and talk about those things or look at the implications. But church, listen to me. The Bible is first and foremost about Him. It's about Him. And as long as you're digging around in there looking for yourself, you're going to be constantly inventing new heresies and coming up confused when this whole book doesn't orbit around you. You're going to be confused. Because at every corner, the flow and stream of Scripture is screaming at you, it's not about you. It's about Him. That's what the Bible floods you with. Listen, church, when you figure out that, that, that it's, not, it's so freeing, Christianity is so freeing when you figure out life is not about you. My goodness. It's about Him. And so when you come to Bible study and you're flipping through these pages and you're trying to say, well, what does this have to do with my life? And that's the main reason why you're cracking this book open. You are swimming upstream of Niagara Falls. It's just going in the other direction. All right? And I'm not saying you may not find a verse here and there that you could put on your basketball shoes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? Like you're going to find your verses in there. But you're going to have to cherry pick. And the cherries you find may end up being rotten because you ain't even picking them in season and appropriately. Do you hear what I'm saying? It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. When people come to you and they come to the Bible and, and, and they search the Scriptures thinking in them they have life, but they don't come and find Jesus in their Bible study or in their preaching it never gets to the Gospel, it never gets around to Jesus, it's not preaching. Did you hear what I'm saying? I don't care if they have an altar call and 20 people come forward. If there is no gospel and there's no Jesus, it's not preaching. Because this is a revelation of Jesus or it's made up man's religion. There's no middle ground here. Now, look at what God has done in His revelation. He gave Him to show His servants. Throughout the book of Revelation, you are described as a doulos, as a servant or slave of God. Jesus had teach the greatest among us serve. The things that soon must be placed. He made, known, made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the tes testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So here's, um, here's kind of what goes down. John has received, God the Father has passed to the Son, who has passed to the angels, who have passed to John, this revelation that he might see it. And he is going to call in verse 19, for John to write down what he sees. And I believe John is going to dig out of his Old Testament vocabulary to try to describe um, what's going on here. Um, because he's going to grapple with the kind of language 
that could portray to people what he's seeing. Um, I've heard it said like this. Good preachers turn ears into eyes. Good preachers turn ears into eyes. John wants you to read this and for you to see what he saw. And sometimes he's going to have to use some hyperbole. Sometimes he's going to have to use some some rather kind of out there language. But he wants you to see what the Bible as a whole tries to tell you and that it's all about Jesus. I love this, that there's this kind of passing of the torch that happens. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched the Olympics, um, but they have this torch that they usually like march around the country and it's this huge honor. They let people, they light the torch and I guess it was probably smaller back then. Now they have this huge thing that they carry and then they like get up and it's like the last part of it. I remember this when I was a kid, there was like this, I don't know, like 10 flights of stairs and this huge bowl and they like throw the torch in there and then it's like this. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody look, y'all looking at me crazy. (laughs) Have you ever seen the Olympics? My God, people. Acting like you just had a kid on Saturday. Um, And they take it in there. And I always thought like, you know, every time they film that, it's always going through some nice neighborhood in the country. Like if it's Greece, they're going through the countryside or, you know, whatever. It's like if that thing ever traveled to where I grew up in Oklahoma, they would never go to my neighborhood because there'd be a bunch of rednecks with like buckets of water, like trying to throw and like douse it out. You'd be have to duck a redneck to get the torch to its destination, right? It's like they never take the torch through Southside Chicago. Don't know why. They just never made its way through Southside. But, but it's like, that's really the picture that he's pointing here is that witness after witness has been faithful. Just as the son is faithful to the father to communicate all that the father's revealed to him. Angels in perfect servitude to the son do as he commands. Just as Jesus said, you know, I have, if I could call right now and a legion of angels would come and aid me as he talked to Pontius Pilate. These angels serve him. And just as the angels serve him in perfect obedience, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John is going to serve and be a faithful witness of the things that he saw. He's going to carry the Olympic torch so that you might have the light passed to you, church. And he's going to dodge Southside Chicago before he gets there. I mean, like when we think about this for a second and we think about who's writing this book, we just finished the Gospel of John where he's a young disciple and you could just see him at the feet of Jesus just soaking up all this stuff. John also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You can read his epistles where he's, he's a pastor and John pastored in Ephesus. And, and you, could, you could see him in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John kind of commending the church and talking to the church about how to live holy and how to walk in faith. Now, in the book of Revelation, he carries the torch as one who, somewhere between the reign of Nero and Domitian, was boiled alive for Christ. And the, 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 the fact is, is that at that time, he was not a young man. He is probably in our legacy club here at the church. He's our 50 and above. Put in boiling oil. Oil can heat three times hotter um, than water. So if you've ever had hot oil and it's burned you at the stove, imagine John plunged full body in that. He somehow survived that. And he was put in exile, which he tells us in this chapter in Patmos. Exile for them was the Alcatraz of his day. He was not near his friends. He was not near his family. He missed them. He didn't get to go to church. He didn't get to be 
and take communion together with them. He didn't get to have Christmas and Easter with his church. He was alone. They exiled him because he survived being boiled alive. He's at a place where maybe his clothes were destitute. Um, even Paul, when he was in prison, in one of the epistles, asked his disciples to bring him a cloak because oftentimes it would get cold in prison and in some of the housing places that he was in. This was a work camp. Patmos was a Roman penal island. It was like the penitentiary where he would work much of the day. And so we see a John who has been weathered by persecution and tribulation and wanting to use the last years of his life to serve God and to serve the kingdom. Listen to me, gray hairs in here and those that should be. Is that your story? Come on now. Is that your story? Is that your story? John could have denied Jesus at Ephesus and had a life of much more comfort and ease at the end of his life. Hear me. He could have denied Jesus at Ephesus and went through much less pain at the end of his life. Much less sacrifice. But he saw the reward of being faithful to Jesus. He saw the blessing and the reward of disciples and generations that are going to come after him as more valuable than retirement and comfort and ease. This is a revelation of Jesus, but he passes it to his faithful ministers who will carry the torch come hell or high water. He bore witness, and look at what he bore witness to, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Listen, is your life a living witness of God's word and of the witness of Jesus, the gospel? John's was. Blessed are those who hear this. Blessed are those that read this. Blessed are those that obey this. He's trying to turn ears into eyes. And so God's telling him, John, write down what you're going to see. John got the vision, you get the book. And so he's telling him to write it down. <clears throat> While I was in Puerto Rico, uh, I've been arrested a few times. Everybody in my immediate family has been arrested back in the old days. And uh, Lord got a hold of me. It's a miracle that I'm even here. And I have five kids. I mean, God's just good. Amen? It's good. But I still, I feel uncomfortable around police officers. All right? It's just, it's for the rest of my life. My whole family does, so it's, it's a genetic thing. Um, I just don't, I've, and Brian Burke used to be in our church. We got a few police officers in here. Boy, just, it's like still, like, I was like, Brian, there's only a level our relationship can go to as long as you work that job. Um, anyway, so we were in Puerto Rico, and I met a Puerto Rican guy who's from Chicago, and uh, speaking of Southside, and a uh, great brother in Christ. And we got talking, and through the course of things, it comes out that he's a police officer. And, of course, that made our relationship change. <clears throat> But uh, no, he, he just had a heart for the Lord and really saw serving in the police as difficult as that is in Chicago as a ministry and as a service and, and trying to bring justice and righteousness to that place. And he said it's really tough. And he was telling me that um, he said a lot of guys come in. He actually trains guys that come in and want to be police officers in the Chicago area. And he says guys come in and they got lots of different abilities. And, they, and particularly like a lot of guys talk about how they can handle a gun. You know, guys come in and say, oh, I can, I can shoot seven guys with this gun. Or, you know, like sort of bragging about that. 
or guys that are really fit and they're muscular and they're like, I can run a mile in like four seconds or whatever. And like they come in and he's like, let me tell you the most important thing to be a good police officer you need to know how to do. Yeah, right. He goes, I, he's like, I've been in the force for like 10 years. I've never shot my gun once. And truth be known, I haven't really chased many people. He's like, but I've written thousands of reports. <laughs> he says, he goes, people get into police work and they think that it's all going to be like shooting people because of movies or it's like all this and that. He says, but the truth is, is that we, we're eyewitnesses. We, we go to people that see things or we see our things ourselves and we fill out reports. And he says, we catch more bad guys because of police reports than we do because of guns or any other means. He says, people don't believe that. He says, but if you fill out the report and the information is in there and we check that against you know, the person, it's like that's how we catch bad guys is we, we get valuable, credible eyewitness accounts. We get evidence and we, we commit a case and we present that and that's how we catch. The pen, my brother tells me, is mightier than the sword. The pen is mightier than the sword. In the same way, John is coming here saying, I want to give you all the evidence in the world as an eyewitness account. I want to reveal to you Jesus. And that's going to be mighty in your life. Do you hear what I'm saying? So he comes and he bears witness of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. First off, um, why these seven churches? I want to address this real quick. Ronnie Foster gave me, of course, machine gun Ronnie Foster gave me some stuff about the apocalypse. Um, I had a baby, so I didn't get to, I started to <laughs> look at it and stuff, and I started passing out. Shout out to Ronnie Foster. I'm going to get to it, Ronnie. I'm sorry. But since you're not here today, I feel okay that I'm not using it. Um, so why these seven? Because we know from Ignatius, uh, Ignatius who um, wrote less than 20 years later that Troas was in Asia Minor right next door to this place. Colossae, which has a book of the Bible written to it, um, Hierapolis, are all churches that could have been written to. So why these seven? Um, there is a theory. And I want to put this out there just so you've heard it before. Um, I don't know what I feel about it. Um, I Basically, I'm indifferent to it. But it's saying that these seven churches are the seven ages of church history. Um, basically, that F Ephesus is the apostolic period where the apostles preach the gospel and make disciples and it spreads like wildfire. And then Smyrna is the early church of martyrdom. And then there's some disagreement in the middle <laughs> about each church. One's the Reformation, the other one's the Enlightenment. Pretty much everybody agrees that we're Laodicea right? <laughs> Lukewarm and abandoned in faith, right? But um, the early church did not have this view, and so I, I don't necessarily espouse it, but I want you to know that it's there. If you have a Schofield reference Bible, it references these seven churches as the seven churches of the church age. Um, but I don't, I don't believe that's the main thing that God's wanting to say right here in his word. I believe that while these churches, um, the natural root of these churches um, from ancient land travel are in a circuit starting at Ephesus and ending at Laodicea, that's not the most important thing that he's trying to say. Uh, what he's trying to say, first and foremost, is that all of these churches 
will exist for all time. What I mean by that is not these particular locations or people, but the same disobedience that they struggle with, you're going to find if you look around churches today. The same obedience and faithfulness that they had, you'll find if you look around churches today. It's that these churches are examples and typical of churches that will exist throughout all of the church age. Many of them with mingled obedience and disobedience. And so he says, this is John writing to the seven churches of Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and him who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Then he's going to elaborate on that a little bit. The firstborn from of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So pause there. So here's your introduction. So the first few verses, one through three, are not our introduction. Four through eight are our introduction. And it's a doozy church. Listen to it. Grace and peace. Grace and peace became the early greeting of the church. And this grace and peace is going to be followed by a Trinitarian formula. The church understood that there is no true peace where there is not true grace. Let me say that again. There is no true peace where there is not true grace. And where grace goes before, peace is sure to follow. This grace and peace is not ambiguous and out there in the Jedi universe. It is anchored in the very person of who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where's that Trinitarian formula you asked me? I'm so glad you asked. In the Bible, the phrase, who is and who was and who is to come, talks about the eternality of the Father. It's referenced in the Old Testament, in the prophets, connected to the tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Y-W, or sorry, Y-H-W-H, thinking in Hebrew, Y-H-W-H. Yahweh is the great I Am, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. This is an Old Testament way of talking about the Father, right? And this is um, important because John, throughout the book of Revelation, is going to as much or more than any other book draw on Old Testament imagery and language to say something new. It's recycled Old Testament prophecy. In the book of Revelation alone, there are over 500 Old Testament references. John alludes, in addition, to nearly every Old Testament book. Let that sink in. Nearly every Old Testament book is alluded to in the book of Revelation. And he alludes to the New Testament in every single chapter of his book. Furthermore, even as we did the the Sunday worship service last Sunday, it's a doxological or a worship volume in that it contains numerous hymns and songs grounded in Scripture. In some ways, it is considered the capstone of the canon of Scripture as a whole. Therefore, it's not surprising that it is the finishing of the revealed, inspired books of God. Now, it goes on to say, so that's a reference of the Old Testament. So if you're not fluent in Old Testament imagery, 
you're going to have you're going to struggle with the book of Revelation because he's recycling much of that language and imagery. Let me go on and say something like this: the seven spirits that are before the throne of God. He is not referencing say or sevenfold spirits. Throughout the book of Revelation, there are numbers, and the numbers have to do with how the Hebrews understood symmetry. Seven was the number for completeness. So it's, it's not necessarily saying that there's actually seven, number them seven spirits. It's saying the complete spirit, the Holy Spirit. So you can read that, and it goes on. It'll use sevens all the time to talk about completeness, not necessarily the actual number seven. For instance, um, seven represents totality, completeness, but it, and, it, and it should be weighed as such. Look at, there's seven spirits, there's seven lampstands in Revelation, there's seven stars, seven golden lamps, seven um, seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven thunders. Um, for me, I'm from Oklahoma, there's only one thunder. Um, um, that's heresy. Um, seven crowns, seven heads, seven plagues, seven bulls, seven hills, seven kings. All these sevens are talking about completeness or totality. In addition, um, there are two passages with seven attributes of God. Revelation 5, Revelation 7. And of course, in the book of Revelation, you may not have known this, there are seven beatitudes. That is, blessed are, so on and so forth. And so, the seven spirits is talking about the Holy Spirit. That's another name for the Holy Spirit. And then last, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What's interesting here about this greeting anchored, God's grace comes from knowing who Christ is and what He's done. Peace comes from knowing who God is and what He's done. Um, check this out. This is phenomenal. From Jesus Christ. So we have Father, who was and is to come, seven spirits, the Holy Spirit, and from Christ, the Son, then it's going to go into two sets of three, as though that's not confusing enough, about which references um, God and His divinity Himself. He is the faithful witness. There's followed by threefold references to Christ's identity and function. His faithful witness, He's the firstborn from the dead, and He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Listen to me. Republicans and Democrats are not in charge of this thing, y'all. Amen? Kim Jong-un, ill, whatever, is not in charge of this. All the nations of the earth. I love what Psalm says. All the kings of the earth are like water in his hands. And he moves them whichever way he wills. God raises up a nation to destroy them. He uses one nation as a judgment against another. All the kings of the earth, their bad decisions and their good decisions, are all inferior to the sovereignty of God. God does things far beyond our reckoning and an imagination. But we have books of the Old Testament that talk about God raising up Babylon to judge Israel for her sin. And Israel responding back and back, how could you use a nation more wicked than us to do this? And the Lord says, I'll do whatever I want. It's not about you. He goes on with a threefold indication of his saving work. He says that Jesus who loves us who has freed us from our sins and made us a kingdom and priests, or a kingdom of priests, as kings and priests. This picture is the beginning of how John wants to paint this book. He wants you walking away 
with a picture of who Jesus is. To him who loves us and has freed us, even so. Now look at what happens next. Behold, verse 7, he is coming with the clouds. Maybe that's referencing actual clouds, but a lot of scholars believe this is the cloud was a picture of God's glory. He's coming with glory. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Annas, Caiaphas, the Roman soldier with the spear that he ran underneath his ribcage. They're all going to see him one day. All the tribes of the earth will wail, will mourn, will weep on account of him. How great and terrible is the coming of the Lord. Described in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord. This day is not a day of joy for all peoples. It's a joy because some people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are going to be saved. And there will be people from every nation that joyfully anticipate and long for the coming of Jesus. It's all, we do missions that people might have maximum joy here and forevermore. We do missions for the glory of God in the nations that the nations might know Him, be saved, enjoy Him, and long for His coming. But don't get it twisted. Many of all nations of the earth want nothing to do with Him. They make laws in their country to hinder the gospel coming in. We could talk even about universities in our county that make laws and rules so Christians maybe don't have the same privileges that other clubs and organizations have. We can't talk about the same things we believe the same way the LGBTQT club can talk about what they believe. Why? They're making rules and laws to stiff arm and alienate themselves from the truth and hearing the gospel. Because they don't love the truth. They love the lie. There are going to be nations who, with Pilate as their representative, are responsible for crucifying the Son of God and not believing His message that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so when He comes, those that have rejected Him will wail and mourn in their error. John says, even so come. If it separates the sheep from the goats, even so come. The righteous from the unrighteous, even so come. The elect from the non-elect, even so come. Those that are mine, between those that have followed Satan and his rule and his reign, even so come. Amen. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is to come. Um, you can't live in maximum glory to God without a healthy faith in the second coming. Knowing what's coming prepares you to live holy for God by God's grace. If you want to be graceful, then you need an eye for what comes next. Like, let me tell you who's not graceful. People who don't recognize that they're steps. Amen? 
Do you know that somebody in your family will fall down all the time? You know what that person lacks? Situational awareness. <laughs> right? The ungraceful person doesn't know where the ground is. Let me tell you, since they changed the stage to a plank, I am situationally aware that Lee Petty almost fell off this. And I ain't trying to do that. Because there's, there's no falling off this and not looking ungraceful. Right? So I want to be situationally aware of where the ground is and scoot this way just a bit. You know what I mean? Graceful people do the same things that you do. They just look good doing it. Right? Why? It's like they're aware of what is around them. They're prepared. You know what I mean? They're comfortable in that environment. Okay? Um, so in the same way, if we want to have grace going into death, we've got to be prepared for death. We want to have grace going into adversity, not wait till adversity and then be like, oh my God, God, right? Like Christians who walk in grace are prepared when pain comes. Those that live daily on His Word don't have to run to it only when the bank account gets slim. Amen? C.S. Lewis has a great quote, and I, I thought not to use it just because it gets controversial in these days and times. But he says, women, thus the controversy, <laughs> sometimes, I see you hedging your bets, Lewis. Women sometimes have the problem of trying to judge by artificial light how a dress will look by daylight. That is the very like the problem of all of us. To dress our souls not for the electric lights of this present world, but for the daylight of the next. The good dress is the one that will face that light. For that light will last longer. It's so indicting of how much I live for my flesh because of how much my day in day out grind and my daily worries and temptations and my daily concerns consume my heart living in these earthly moments with barely even a glimpse to what is to come. Amen? How many of us are using our days thinking about the next 10 days, 10 weeks, 10 years? On earth and not using our life for the next 10 billion times 10 billion years to come in the next. Church, this is the height of foolishness. It's the height of foolishness. Lewis says we should prepare for that light that is to come. And the dress and the preparation that is the one is not the one for the artificial light, the dim lights of this world, but it's for the eternal light that will blaze much longer. I know this is a bad illustration for Colorado because in general, if you go to Walmart, it seems like people dress in strobe, under strobe lights, but <clears throat> take it for what you will. Look in the next section. I love this. We'll come back to Alpha and Omega. Let me, let me pause there. He's going to reference the first and the last again, and I'm going, to, I'm going to come back to that Alpha and Omega because it's powerful. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation 
and in the kingdom of patient endurance that are in Jesus. Okay, stop right there. Let me just say something really quick to you. He's a partner in tribulation and in the kingdom, and he's exercised patience and endurance when he had the opportunity to quit. Um, Don't give all people equal weight when it comes to speaking into your faith. Don't give all people equal footing and weight when it comes to speaking into your faith. I could talk about this with your business, right? You, like, step aside for even the Christian thing here for a minute. Say you own a business, right? And there's people that come all the time and there's people that, you know, like actually have enjoyed it and, and like see what you do. And then there's one person that comes one time driving through town, right? And I love um, what one review said. It says, come drink the worst cup of coffee one person on Yelp ever had, right? Right? And there's a way in which businesses can listen to the squeaking wheel of one person not actually invested in the business completely change their business for the bad. In a church, we can listen as leadership to a lot of people who don't get their tail end up here and serve. They're not engaged with serving kids, serving families. They're not involved in house churches. They're not sharing the gospel. They're not grabbing people up and mentoring them, taking them down to Brenda's, getting coffee. Come on now. They're not making disciples, but they want to have a say in how the church uses its money for missions or for this or that. Do you hear what I'm saying? And you can in that moment allow people who are actually not invested with their blood equity to dictate the vision and direction of the church. Now let me get back down to your faith. John is saying, I have suffered tribulation. I've endured. I've been patient. John has proven to be the kind of person that should have a ton of weight in the lives and the faith of the disciples. Do you hear what I'm saying? There are other individuals that you should not listen to as much as John. Amen? There are people right now When you have to make a decision for our young people about your future spouse, for our young families, there's decisions you've got to make about your kids, right? For some of you about jobs and retirement and what you're going to do. And listen, there are people who are seriously invested in you. They care about you. You should not just flippantly take any job. You should talk to the people that have earned weight and care about your discipleship and care about your faith and your holiness. All right. Long way. Everybody okay with that? Does that make all the sense in the world? John has earned the right to speak into their life. Not all people should have equal weight when they speak into your faith. If you give everybody equal weight, there's a good chance you could be derailed. All right. Kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ on the island of Patmos. Again, that's the Alcatraz of its day. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And some of you, because you don't know about Patmos... Except for what I explained, you're like, I would like to be sent to a Greek island for the word of God. Testimony. It's not that kind of island, right? Um, Sean Connery is not there. Um, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now I've heard this understood that he is transposed and taken to the future on the day that the Lord returns. I've heard this said that this is actually talking about Easter 
But I believe the um, simplest interpretation is that he, it's a Sunday. And I wish, like John, many of us saw the Lord's Day, took a Lord's Day, where one day out of seven we dedicated to the Lord to just be in His Spirit. Amen? And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, got that blasting voice like Louis Armstrong behind him, saying, write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And if you think that I didn't double-check how to say those things before I got up, false. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, and with a sash around his chest. Disconcerting to me as an American male. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire, and his feet were like bronzed, bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I felt his feet though dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last. There's that phrase again. And the living one, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Those that are, those um, that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now angels here, um, the same word for messenger and angel in the Bible is interchangeable. So some say that maybe there's an angel over every church, which would be interesting to think about. Our church angel, you know, must love altitude and it's probably beat up quite a bit. Um, but it could also mean there was a lead elder over this church at the time and they're sometimes called angels, elders and messengers inside of the church. So it's one of those two interpretations, the seven lampstands. Now, look at how he describes our Jesus, because I think it's kind of curious. Mainly because um, we found some, you know, there's some pictures in here of Jesus. Um, different churches you go into, Jesus is, you know, he's usually white, <laughs> and he's got long flowing hair, all right, and uh, he's dressed in a gown with a sash, and it makes you a little bit nervous because you're like coming to church, he's like, I think I could beat up Jesus. And yet the picture that we have in Revelation is, you know, not can Jesus survive my neighborhood, but could my neighborhood survive Jesus? It talks about these 12 lampstands. Now, in the lampstands, the Old Testament tabernacle, um, Moses con constructed a seven-branch lampstand in Exodus 25, which was a symbol of God's people in the Old Testament. So again, we have recycled Old Testament imagery. Zechariah had a similar vision of seven um, golden lampstands fed by seven pipes. Um, he was explained to him that the eyes of the Lord um, range throughout the earth, and that, that's a part of, in Zechariah 4, how God, his eyes look throughout all the earth. The church is the candlestick that holds forth the light of the gospel to the advantage of those that have eyes to see. The church, the church is not the candle, it's the stick. Christ is the light of this church. Our light in this church depends on Him. 
I love that when it says here that Jesus is among the lampstands, he's in the midst of them. Jesus could have been over them or under them, different things. But it's when we gather together as a church where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. It rings of Matthew 28, 20. Lo and behold, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. When we gather in the name of Jesus for the glory of Jesus, Jesus is in the midst of us. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's here among us. It's, um, verse 13 describes Jesus having a robe. Um, if you look in Daniel 7, there are so many references that Jesus here is in fulfillment of the vision in Daniel 7. The Son of Man um, in Daniel 7 is alluded to no less than 31 times in the book of Revelation. And here we have an explicit picture where Jesus is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. He has a robe. In Exodus 28, the high priest had a robe, um, which is a little bit weird for us because men don't wear robes. Um, but the, the word here is only once used for robe. Um, it's used 12 times for the high priest's flowing robe. And the only picture here that we have is when a bride is being married and she, ha- she chooses one of those like ridiculous like long dresses, right? Looking around to see who's judging me because you had one. Um, and what ends up happening is the bridesmaids end up having to like, like bunch that up into some laundry, right? And come behind them because uh, maybe only worse than falling off stage while preaching the gospel is falling down at your wedding, um, tripping on your own robe. So the bridesmaids come alongside and she, they pick up that. And so men would use like a harness or a belt and they would wrap that robe up. The robe was a symbol of honor. It was a blessing. It was something that people of wealth and status and dignity had long robes because I guess they could afford the fabric, right? And then they would have a sash to bind it up. So you sometimes see in old movies where there's Romans and they would bind up their robe and they would wrap it in kind of their their G.I. Joe sash thing. Um, Jesus has a golden one of those in honor of that. And so we see here that Jesus, the high priest, is honorable. In verse 14, it talks about his white hair, which is also a reference to Daniel 7.9 and Daniel 10.5. I just want to allude, some of you people came in here with the Jesus haircut. You didn't even know it. But if you've got white hair, you're in good company. The biblical view of aging um, is not shared by our culture, so this is actually one of the reasons why this can get tricky in the church, because our culture values young people. We want a news service with a young-looking person. Um, We want young people singing songs. We want young people doing this and that. Age is not revered. And I think there's actually a a lot of of really serious dangers in a culture that can't show honor and respect to people that have lived a long time. Um, To people that have lived through things and have experience and wisdom. Cultures all over the world have ways in which you, you show reverence and respect to people that are older. And our culture is losing a lot of its means and um, kind of mechanisms for showing respect to old age. And so sometimes even in the church, this gets a little tricky, but in the Bible, it's clear. Um, Proverbs talk about white hair is a crown and a glory. It's a part of his dignity. It's the glory of your age. Um, Just as a reference, if you've seen an old British film or something, um, you know, back in the day, judges, even if they were still had the color in their hair, they would put, put on what? A wig of white hair. And it was a symbol of dignity. And so, 
the biblical view here is that Jesus, it's not a talking about, it's talking about his agelessness, his eternality, talking about his white hair, it's talking about his crown of glory and his wisdom. So when you pull some of those grays out, like just remember what you're pulling out there. But in truth, I want to say something just to us culturally. Is there anything more pathetic maybe than a 70-year-old trying to act like they're 17? There is... We need, in this church, people to embrace their age and to show us the grace that God has shown them there. We need people who are not young people. We need people that show us the grace of aging well. We need that in this church. At the same time, that this shows us how Jesus is ageless, He's eternal, it says that He has fire in His eyes which is a picture of youth and vitality. So he's both the wisdom of the aged and he's still got fire in his belly. Don't you love that? In the same way, we need young people in this church. If this church becomes all gray hair, we're in trouble. Amen? If it becomes people with no gray hair, also trouble, right? So we need a mix of both. We see Jesus in our young people who have energy, have fire for the Lord, And we see Jesus in the elderly. We are called to be people who in wisdom earn gray hairs, but still have fire in our eyes. There is no place in the kingdom to let your eyes droop lazy like you're watching a television show you really don't care about. Amen? Next in verse 15, it says he has hot metal looking feet. Ezekiel and Daniel talk about the brightness of metal like a fire is one of the symbols connected with the appearance of the glory of God. Talks about his voice, which in one sense is the blast of a trumpet like Louis Armstrong right behind your ear. And at the same time, it's the roar of all the oceans crashing at once, or the rivers of all the earth flowing over the highest cliff coming down. Have you ever had to try to have have you ever tried to have a conversation at the base of Niagara Falls? Right? You will be trying to scream over one another. What we have is the voice of Jesus. Have you ever been to the ocean and just feel like you could listen to the ocean and the waves come in for hours? There's something almost therapeutic about it, right? That's why there's so many country songs, you know, about going down by the ocean and drinking tequila or whatever country people do. It's almost therapeutic when you hear the water come in. What do you feel, Colorado people, when you go down by the river and you just hear the water going by? Right? Something melodic almost to it. He says, the voice of Jesus was like the roar of many waters. It was Niagara Falls. It made your voice almost deaf. Um, I I think that this is fascinating because um, we have so many television shows that I don't watch, um, but I've seen clips of called The Voice. Who here watches The Voice? Come on. Nobody. Oh, you don't even have TVs. I'm sorry. Um, You wouldn't admit it. You're like, he's going to make fun of us if we raise our hand. You know me so well. Right? Or American Idol. But there's this show. It's like called, the. uh, I think it's The Voice. Someone gets on stage and begins singing. And there's these professional musicians, apparently the know-it-all, the judges of the earth. Right? And as they hear the person's voice, they can choose to turn around and see the person and, you know, the show goes on. 
but they can choose to ignore the person's voice. And so what happens is the show is really about, is your voice captivating? Is it compelling? Does it make someone turn around? And what Jesus does here is, his voice is so overcoming. Its power and its beauty and its majesty causes John to turn towards Jesus. I love when John taught as a young disciple, he heard Jesus say, my sheep know my voice. They will not follow another. It's the voice of the Lord. That's how he leads us. Verse 16 talks about the sword in his mouth. He uses a rare Greek word, rontphiea. Um, it was a large, broad-bladed sword used by the Thracians at the time. Um, it talks about God's governance, his ability to strike the wicked. Isaiah 11.4 says he strikes the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. It is a symbol of his authority, his power, and his ability to make war on evil and evildoers. Um, later we'll read in chapter 2, he overcomes the Nicolaitans and makes war with them. This is a false heretical group who tries to hijack the church and take it after false teaching. And he says that he does overcome them by the sword of his mouth. He strikes down the rebellious at his coming with just such a sword, that sword being the truth and power of his word. The point of this is Jesus wins. We can play all the games we want between here and there, but at the end, Jesus wins. And he wins via his word. Lastly, it talks about he is like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When you stood on a mountaintop way too close to the sun, you don't get all that atmospheric pressure blast, and the sun comes down and beats down upon you, and it's so bright, it feels like it's going to burn your eyeballs up. John says standing in front of Jesus is like that. It's overcoming. It's overwhelming. He wants us to have this picture. He comes and says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. God is our starting place. Right? And I know that's hard for us in our culture because we believe we've got to invent our own origin story. And we get, truth is something that we have to cook up and invent for ourselves. But the Bible is going to argue that we were created by a creator and truth is not conjured, it is discovered. We must discover truth from the one who hardwired the universe with his word. And he's not just the beginning, full of meaning, full of truth. He is the omega. He's the finishing. He's the one of which all things find its purpose in pointing to him. He's the omega or destination point of our life. Church, what is your omega point? The place that you want to achieve. The thing you want to attain. What is the omega point? Here's what the omega point is. If you lost it, your life would be meaningless. Your omega point gives your life meaning. Where is your life headed? Because if you, if you lost that thing, you would say, my life is meaningless. It's the thing in your life that you would say is non-negotiable. And God's going to come and say, when it comes to the destination of your life, 
I'm the only non-negotiable you should have. Because everything else is negotiable. God refuses, in saying He's the Omega, He refuses to be your accomplice in your idolatry. To get to some other destination or to some other purpose and meaning. That is no meaning and is no purpose at all. And let me put it this way. If you are just a combination of biological accidents, and that's your origin story, that's your alpha, and your omega has no meaning of where you're going, if you're beginning, your alpha is meaningless, and your omega is meaningless, the middle is meaningless. And God's saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the purpose on the front end. I'm the purpose on the back end. I'm the purpose and meaning of everything in between. So don't come at me and talk to me if you say we are a mere biological accident on the front end and that our life has no meaning on the back end and then talk to me about social justice in the middle. Because Hitler cannot be evil if there's no good. Do you hear what I'm saying? We can't talk about injustice and abuse of women or the exploitation of children and, and sex trafficking. We can't talk about those things as being evil or that there's meaning and purpose in fighting social injustice if there's not such a thing as justice and meaning. Do you hear what I'm saying? All day long, our culture wants to say rape, genocide, unjust taxes. There's all these kind of things that we get upset about in the middle and there's meaning and there's purpose and these things contradict that and offend that and yet we're being fed that our beginning and our end has no meaning. If the beginning has no meaning and the end has no meaning, nothing in the middle is truly meaningful either. But church, God's going to say, I'm your alpha. I'm the one that knit you together in your mother's womb. I knew you before I formed the earth. I created your mind, your family. I knew where your story would go. I'm your alpha. You find your origin story in me. I'm your destination. I'm the place you're heading. I'm the purpose of your life and the point of your life. And I give meaning to everything you do in the middle. Isn't that awesome? He's the Alpha, He's the Omega. He's the beginning, and He's the end. Why is this vision of Jesus important? John wants us to start this book captivated for how Jesus looks. He's not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed European skipping around on the beach, right? When you think of Jesus in worship, does His eyes have a flame? Does his feet have glory? Does his voice sound to you like the rushing of many waters? If not, your view of Jesus is outdated. It's not that he wasn't a baby. He was, and we should celebrate that every Christmas. It's not that he didn't live and heal and teach, die on the cross and rise from the grave. Amen, amen, amen. But he is the resurrected Lord soon coming with the sword in his mouth to dispense righteousness and justice. 
Are you prepared to meet him? Do you see him as he is? Why is it important? Why does John fight at the front end to give us such imagery? I think it's because 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, For we all, with veiled face, beholding, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. One degree of